1: Welcome everyone to the On Poly Podcast. I'm Steve Pakin. And I'm John Michael McGrath. Today on the pod, Ontario's Auditor General releases her annual report of how the government spent your money, or perhaps more accurately, sometimes misspent your money. We'll take a deep dive into all of that.
0: The saga over Bill 124 continues, The courts have struck it down. Does that mean public servants are
1: now entitled to $8 billion in back pay? And we'll take another look at our special series called Recession Road. Our affordability reporter, Kat Eschner, joins us with a view from Windsor. But first...
2: The leadership question is something that I struggled with. I Part of me really wanted to do it.
0: With MPP Catherine Fife and several other New Democrats ruling a race out, the NDP leadership contest isn't much of a contest after all. Only one candidate appears to be in line to replace Andrea Horvath. It's
1: Tuesday, December 6th, 2022, so let's get to it. JMM, how you doing? Uh, I'm well, Steve. How you doing? Uh, Just great. Uh, All the better for hearing the great news out of baseball, which I'm sure you're all over. You heard the news about Fred McGriff, right? I I don't know who that is, now. Oh, John Michael McGriff. Fred McGriff? Fred McGriff now becomes the third person to have played for the Blue Jays, to have played a significant chunk of his career with the Blue Jays, who's going to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Well, that's very nice. That's a big deal, yes. I'm I'm very happy for him. Can you tell me who the other two are? Uh, I want to say, what, Carter and Alomar? Not Joe Carter. Robbie Alomar is correct. Ah. Tiff Lamb, our producer, was in my ear saying RH, and she is right about that. Doc Halliday, Roy Halliday, he's also in. And now Fred McGriff, the crime dog. Which is his nickname. So I know tonight when, uh, you know, when you're raising a glass over dinner, you're going to want to make a toast to Fred McGriff.
0: I will be toasting to uh, this Blue Jay.
1: Yeah, this Blue Jay. Listen to him. All right. Listeners will know that we have begun taking questions and discussion prompts from our audience lately about things we're saying here on the podcast, uh, on our newsletter, maybe even our columns. A reminder, you can do this by emailing us at onpolitics at org. JMM, what do we have this week? This uh, critique comes
0: from Kathy Crow in Toronto on our newsletter discussion from November 22nd uh, around the lack of a concrete directive on mask mandates. Uh, Kathy writes, just a comment that I think the conversation between Steve and John on mask mandates could have gone a bit farther or perhaps needs a take two. There was no description of the massive crisis in ERs and pediatric ICUs impacted by RSV, flu, and still COVID. It's interesting that polls and Dr. Moore's thoughts on mask resistance by the conservative government might have influenced his non-mandate decision, but what about basic public health science? Steve, care to respond first?
1: Uh, sure. And first of all, when Kathy Crow talks, I listen, Indeed. and that's because uh, for those who don't know her, she is um, many decades now a street nurse in downtown Toronto who has done a lot of great work for a lot of people uh, who are um, well, who are having a hard time uh, living in this capital city of ours. She has uh, as much experience in her, you know, baby finger as uh, many of us do 20 times over. So when she talks, I listen. Uh, she's got the Order of Canada as well, I think, for all of her great work that she's done. Uh, she, look, at, she makes a great point. She makes a great point. And, and one of the things that I find, I must confess, a bit confusing. What are we into the third year now of COVID-19? One would have thought that over the past few years that this whole notion of capacity in ICUs would have been nailed by now. We have presumably got to figure out a way, and I know I'm getting away from mask mandates here, but we had terrible uh, ICU capacity problems in the first six months when COVID-19 hit. Not enough ventilators, not enough respirators, not enough beds, not enough nurses, the whole nine yards. But that was three years ago. And COVID's not even back with a vengeance right now. It's back, you know, but not with a vengeance. People, thankfully, are not dying today in the way they were two and a half years ago. Are we really no further ahead when it comes to ICU capacity than we were two and a half years ago? I sure hope we are, but um, that's something we better be following up on.
0: Well, and I think part of the issue is that um, in this specific respect, we aren't facing the same problem that COVID presented, right? Pediatric ICUs are not the same thing as adult ICUs. Every doctor I've spoken to in the last three years has reiterated, you know, children are not just small adults, and you can't just transfer the people or the resources from uh, adult ICUs to pediatric care. Uh, It just doesn't work that way. So to your point, Steve, I mean, even if we had learned uh, uh, the lesson properly of early COVID and how scary the thought of running out of ICU capacity was, it still might not have prepared us for uh, where we are today, which, you know, as a parent of a child who is mercifully out of the uh, highest risk danger zone for things like uh, RSV and flu and, and now has uh, three doses of a COVID vaccine, um, this is not a a direct thing that keeps me up at night
1: beyond just the fact that I'm a parent who worries, (laughs) you know. But, 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 I mean, theoretically, at this point in COVID, we surely should have been able to figure out a way to ramp up ICU capacity as needs be if things hit the fan. And if we're not there yet, and Kathy's comment seems to suggest that we're not, let's get with it, people. Well, yeah. And, you know, I think
0: to Kathy's point, you know, we tried not to lose sight of the context of the politics that we are talking about, right? Politics is one part of a story that happens within this province. And when we are talking about the politics of mask mandates, Yes, obviously, that is happening in the context of a hospital system that is uh, deeply stressed. And, uh, you know, as we are recording this, the Red Cross is being called into CHEO in Ottawa, uh, the hospital I was born in, as it turns out. <laughs> I understand the desire for us to always see these, these discussions in the real world consequences. And as a reporter, as a journalist, I, I have always tried to, to keep that in mind. We don't always find the space in the
1: newsletter to root it as firmly as I think Kathy would have liked. Despite that, we thank Kathy very much for writing. Kathy Crowe, she's got a book as well. Folks might want to drop by a local bookstore or go to the library uh, to uh, just look for Kathy Crowe, C-R-O-W-E. Check out her book. There are tremendously important stories there about her experiences working on the streets. So we thank Kathy again for writing in.
0: Again, if you'd like to ask about content on the show, please email us at onpoliticsattvo.org. Now. On to issue one.
2: The most important thing that has to happen for us as a party is we need to be reunified so that we can fight the Ford government effectively. And um, if we can do that without a leadership race, uh, that's fine. If somebody else comes out and there is a debate around the leadership, that's great too. Uh, but right now, our sole focus needs to be on ensuring that this government doesn't do so much damage to Ontario that we can't reverse it.
1: That was Catherine Fife, the NDP MPP for Waterloo. You may remember we spoke with her last month about her private member's bill on allowing elderly married couples to live together in long term care homes. That is a right currently not guaranteed to them and sometimes results in couples who've been married for as long as 65 years, living their final years apart in long-term care, which is obviously far from ideal. Anyway, back to the NDP leadership, we also talked about the fact that despite many people thinking she was a strong contender, Catherine Fife opted not to run for the leadership. It was a little off topic for our conversation on long-term care, but we saved the tape of the question and answer that we did go through about why she didn't run. So why don't we play that now?
2: the leadership question is something that i struggled with part of me really wanted to do it uh, that said uh, politics these days is a toxic mess i am at a stage right now in my life uh, with some family commitments that you know would not allow for a 100 percent all-in effort you know i'm not a natural i'm not a natural uh you know extrovert So it takes a lot, it takes a lot of energy to, you know, be out there in front of a large crowd. It's not my comfort zone. And, and I thought, I thought for a little while that I could be that person, but I'm really more of a policy. I'm a policy politician.
1: So, JMM, what would you
0: take away from that? Well, you know, this is happening within a context, and we'll get into more of this, but uh, Fife is not alone in choosing not to run. Uh, just over the weekend, uh, Wayne Gates and uh, Salma Maqua also New Democrats in the legislature, uh, both uh, formalized their decision not to run. You know, it was a really... Interesting admission on Fife's part. Uh, you know, I mentioned in that conversation with her that, you know, she's been speculated as a potential future leader of the party since almost as long as I've been at Queen's Park. Uh, you know, Frankly, to...
1: almost as long as she's been at Queen's Park. <laughs> <laughs> she's been a rising star for a long time. Yeah,
0: she she got there in 2012. Uh, election. I got there in 2013. And uh, in the immediate aftermath of the 2014 election, when uh, that was a very disappointing result for Andrea Horvath and the party, uh, there were people speculating that Horvath would either step aside or be pushed aside, and uh, that Fife was one of those names, uh, as well as Jagmeet Singh's, uh, that people kept talking about. Now, obviously, that none of that happened. Horvath stayed and would lead the party into 2018, but uh, it was certainly notable that that Fife has decided that it's, you know it's just not the the career path that she wants to take. Uh, but it also tracks with uh, things we have heard from other uh, MPPs, including a uh, former MPP Rima Burns McGowan, the new Democrat for Beaches East York. Uh, she spoke with us earlier this year she opted not to run again because of the same uh, toxic politics and uh, a really difficult environment for people who aren't uh, naturally gregarious as you
1: are as you are (laughs) one of us is a broadcaster for decades (laughs) well let's fess up about something here we are recording this at uh, well almost 3 p.m. Monday the deadline for candidates to enter the race is 1 a.m. Tuesday as in an hour past midnight Uh, We have no reason to suspect that anyone else will enter this race. You pointed out two MPPs who aren't going to go. They've confirmed that, which means there is no race. (laughs) There's really only one candidate, and that's Marit Stiles, the member for Davenport. So if, as we suspect, no one else gets in, she's it. She's the new leader. And I think we should talk a bit about how odd it is for a party leader, and frankly, not just any party leader, the leader of His Majesty's loyal official opposition, to be acclaimed. That's odd. It is. I mean, the other name we use for
0: the official opposition sometimes is the government in waiting. And, you know, the idea that nobody wants, the, or rather, I should say only one person wants this job uh, is, it is kind of odd. Uh, technically, it may not be an acclamation, or a, a, in the true sense of the word, because I found this little detail, and I have to share it with our listeners. The Ontario NDP's constitution, the the document that constitutes the party, uh, currently reads, quote, the leader shall be elected by a vote of the membership of the party. That vote has to happen whether there is one candidate or 10. So uh, one scenario that was laid out to me is that NDP members might literally just be sent a ballot that says something like, Marit Stiles yes or no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no kidding. Now, I've never seen that happen before. Well, okay. uh, this,
0: this is the kind of stuff that they are debating about how to handle what is, for all intents and purposes, a, a one-person race. As you say, Steve, it does seem odd. The Liberals and the NDP in Ontario have actually both had acclamations in their past or at least single-candidate contests in their past. Uh, the Tories never have in the modern era. There is some precedent in other provinces, though. Uh, John Horgan won an uncontested leadership bid in BC not that long ago, would later become premier of BC. Uh, further back in time, uh, Saskatchewan premier Roy Romano was acclaimed in 1987, went on to lead
1: the NDP back into power. I think you can add one more, actually. I think Dave Barrett also in British Columbia was acclaimed, and I think Mike Harcourt might have been as well. These are all BC NDP leaders. right? And
0: so, you know, people who are backing Styles could say, like, it's not necessarily a a bad omen uh, for a new democrat to uh, not have a a stiff competition but that is the question right is this good for the party is it good for styles um that might seem like a silly question right you might, might think it's obvious that she would prefer to win in a walk um but no contest means that there is no energy in this uh in this leadership bid, right, no, no spotlight on the NDP, no uh, televised debates or no spotlight from the media uh, and, and no period where somebody like Styles would get time to, like, talk to media about her past and her life and how it, inf- you know, all of that stuff that a leadership bid makes possible hasn't happened. So if Stiles is, in fact, uh, the only candidate standing at the end of the day, at the end of this day as we record it, uh, you know, one thing that the NDP are going to have to figure out as we move forward is how to draw some attention to to the party and to Stiles, uh, not least because the liberals may start getting more attention next year as they have their own leadership bid and try to rebuild.
1: Well, I'll tell you who's with you on that, and that is uh, a former prime minister of this country by the name of Brian Mulroney. And he, you know, it was his view that a good, fiery, energetic, uh, yes, sometimes even down and dirty leadership convention was great for the party because it did create a lot of interest. You'd get a lot of public attention. And he, he gave these examples. He said in his experience, when the PC party, as it then was, the Progressive Conservative Party of Canada, went through really tough, intense leadership battles, for example, 1976, when Joe Clark won against Mulroney and against the father of the current chief justice of the Supreme Court, a man named Richard Wagner. Um, Well, Claude Wagner was his father. In the next election, after that bruising leadership battle, the progressive conservatives won. That was Joe Clark's 1979 election victory. And then again in 1983, another really intense, huge battle. Brian Mulroney, Joe Clark, John Crosby, Michael Wilson, David Crombie, And then a year later in the election, the progressive conservatives won. On the other hand, when you look at coronations, as this one is for Marit Stiles, with the PC party, it was 1993. There was a coronation for Kim Campbell. Later that year, there was an election. They lost badly, down to two seats. And Mr. Mulroney believes that there's something about all of what goes into a very energetic, bruising leadership battle that kind of brings the troops together, creates interest and excitement and leads to electoral victory. Um, is you right? Is there really any connection between acclamation for new Democrats and becoming premier, or bruising contests for progressive conservatives and then becoming Prime Minister? I don't know, but it's a theory, and there we go. we'll put it out there
0: well and i I would add I, you know as perhaps another data point in this theory, you know, look at what happened to the Liberal Party just last time. They had a uh, a, a desperate need to rebuild the party, but they had a pretty quiet leadership race, all things considered. Stephen delduc, I think was widely acknowledged to have it, if not entirely sewn up um he was certainly the the runaway favorite very early on, and it it was gentle by the standards of these things one ballot and over and i don't know that that necessarily contributed to the disappointing results uh, this year but it would seem to fit with the theory
1: well compared with the previous two kathleen wins was a tough one she won the next election dalton mcginty won on the fifth ballot in a real bruiser uh he won the next three elections in a row so you know there might be something to this there's something about being tested by leadership conventions that may in the long run do some leaders some good
2: During my tenure as Auditor General, I have worked with successive minority majority governments led by different political parties. While governments and political philosophies change, the primary goal of my independent office has been unwavering to maintain the focus of our work on providing objective, nonpartisan, and fact based information to all members of the Legislature and Ontarians on whether taxpayer money is being well spent.
1: That is Auditor General Bonnie Lissick briefing reporters on her latest and last annual report last week at Queen's Park. Once a year, the Auditor General of Ontario releases a report which governments usually await in terror, while opposition parties and media lick their chops. That's because the auditor usually finds myriad examples of tax dollars being not particularly well spent. And we thought, just to give you a really good sense of the kinds of things the auditor goes after— John Michael, we thought let, let's take turns. Uh, we'll each go back and forth, giving the listeners some short bites on what the auditor found. Just before we do that, though, how about reminding us? What the auditor's mission actually is.
0: The auditor general is an officer of the legislature. That is to say, uh, she doesn't answer to the premier. She answers to all MPPs. And she's given uh, a measure of independence in order to do that. Uh, she has a 10-year term, uh, built-in job security. She can only be fired for cause, which is something that is defined in law that, you know, she can't simply be fired on on the whim of the government of the day. Um She can't have that term renewed, though. And uh, so it is a a nonpartisan, independent agency. Uh, The auditor general may come and go, but there is a a substantial team of people uh, who are are behind all of that work. And uh, yeah, the job is to investigate the government and where the money goes and how it is being spent. As Woodward and Bernstein
1: used to say, follow the money. Okay, let's do that. Let's go through this, and we're going to take turns on what we found to be the so-called greatest hits in this final report. And I'll start with something COVID-related. The auditor found that 66 million pieces of PPE, personal protective equipment, were either damaged or found to be obsolete. Lots of wasted money, as you can imagine. This is not only a problem of the past, but also of the future, given that the province has hundreds of millions of dollars of PPE on hand— and needs to figure out how to handle all that equipment to ensure it doesn't become obsolete or damaged. We've also apparently got $81 million worth of those N95 masks, which are set to expire before this decade is out. And obviously, we want to make sure that doesn't become obsolete as well. Let's look at auto insurance premiums. The Auditor General pretended to seek 10
0: different quotes from different insurance companies, uh, used the same basic sort of demographic profile in every case. What did she find? Uh, Auto insurance that cost $1,200 in London cost $3,350 in Brampton. I believe they
1: call that postal code discrimination. Yes, indeed. The uh, legislature has tried to address this on a few occasions. Mm-hmm. Let's look at highway expansion plans. The Ministry of Transportation of Ontario has a list of priority expansion plans. Apparently, the auditor found that lower-ranked priorities were moved higher up the list, while higher-ranked priorities were moved lower down the list. Now, she's not necessarily saying anything nefarious happened here. She does agree that politicians should be able to do what they want in this regard. Her complaint is that it was not done transparently. If you're going to switch up the order, she says... Tell the people why. I will just very quickly
0: add that this has been a continuing theme of, of Lissick's tenure. She has always said governments have the right to make their policy choices but just be transparent with people. Uh, let's look at the post secondary sector. The Ministry of Colleges and Universities has uh, no long range plan or vision uh, formally uh, set out for the sector. Uh, Lissick notes that there's a very heavy reliance on uh, foreign students. Uh, this is not a surprise to anybody who's, who's uh, studied this issue in the last few years because foreign students. students. Students pay much higher tuitions to attend Ontario universities. Uh, Their tuitions are not regulated. So, of course, uh, they bring in a lot of money. Uh, Lissick looked at Algoma, Nipissing, Ontario Tech, and Windsor, uh, found them all to be in relatively good financial uh, state. Uh, She was, of course, doing this in the uh, context of the uh, collapse of Laurentian University, which we will talk about more in a moment. But uh, one detail that stood out to me, Algoma University, nominally based in Sault Ste. Marie, according to the Auditor General, records 51% of its enrollment from its satellite campus in Brampton.
1: Which, last I checked, is not near Sault Ste. Marie. No, no, well (laughs) south of (laughs) Lake Huron. (laughs) Got it. Okay, let's look at the invasive species problem in Ontario. The auditor found the Ministry of Natural Resources does not have the money to stop this problem. She says they only have one staff member. Only one doing risk assessment across the province. She found gaps in the provincial agencies collaborating with the federal government to solve this problem. And the failure to figure it out, she concludes has resulted in the problem being downloaded at additional cost to municipalities, which can't afford to deal with this.
0: On to casinos. Uh, Auditor General wonders why the government gave a break to casinos to pay the Treasury less than what they had agreed to in signed contracts. Uh, Casinos argued that they were uh, too poor to fulfill their agreements, but the AG notes these casinos are all privatized now. Many of them are owned by uh, very large multinational corporations, and if they couldn't meet their
1: commitments locally, the parent companies should have had to pony up. Here's some obvious advice on the issue of flooding. The Auditor General has pointed out that there isn't enough green space in cities so that when there's heavy rainfall, the water can't be absorbed and instead causes flooding, which, of course, leads to basements being flooded, big costs, uh, insurance claims, inconvenient uh, to say the least to clean up. Obvious solution? Come on, cities, we need more parkland uh, to absorb the heavy rainfall. Okay, and we're just going to circle back to one more post-secondary item, and
0: this is, of course, Laurentian University in Sudbury. This has been uh, just a wild tale to watch unfold over the last few years. Uh, The university had enormous financial difficulties, uh, largely resulting from uh, trying to invest more than it had the student body to support. The president of Laurentian, Robert Hache, decided the best way to dig out of the financial hole was to declare bankruptcy. That was allow Laurentian to fire staff, cancel programs, not have to repay suppliers, and crucially to Breached the collective bargaining agreements that Laurentian had uh, with its academic and non-academic staff. The Auditor General asked Laurentian for access to its books and documents because no university had ever declared bankruptcy before in Ontario. Laurentian refused, which led to this uh, protracted battle in court that ended up being settled more or less by the legislature itself. The legislature, in short order, issued uh, speaker's warrants uh, demanding documents uh, to be uh, submitted to uh, the committee and to the auditor general. The speaker's warrant is this uh, extraordinary tool that the uh, legislature has, but it is a constitutional privilege. It is sort of like a nuclear option. If somebody is stonewalling a court, uh, certainly anybody in the public sector, if the legislature demands your papers, it's going to get your papers. There's just (laughs) not really uh, an argument there. Uh, And after the, the documents were uh, submitted, and, and many of them have uh, now been made public, uh, the Auditor General concluded that uh, bankruptcy was basically a, a clever way to avoid the, the fiscal day of reckoning. And uh, understandably, I think we can say she was quite miffed at the university's secrecy, the lack of cooperation, and uh, really the, the university leadership's conduct through this whole tale.
1: And let's just say for the record here, in the interest of full disclosure, I was the chancellor at Laurentian University from 2013 till 2020. So, in other words, before any of this stuff happened, once it did happen, I resigned the position. And that's why I'm not saying anything about it right now. There we go. Let's save the best for last. And that is another casino item, and it's on the issue of money laundering. The Auditor General, how about this, JMM? The Auditor General ran a sting operation. She sent agents into several casinos. With money, and the source of that money was not apparent. This is basically how it's supposed to work. You're allowed to take your winnings from the casinos and go to a teller's window and request a cashier's check so that you don't obviously walk out of the casino with hundreds of chips, for example. But you're not supposed to be able to take external sources of money and do the same thing because they don't know what the source of the money is in that case, and it's potentially money laundering. When the AG ran her sting operation, some casinos didn't fall for it, but some did, and that is the practice that she wanted to expose. Question for you. Did you hear what the premier had to say about all this?
0: I did. uh, Let's say he's not a fan of this (laughs) conduct. uh, Gave the Auditor General hell for doing it, said uh, she shouldn't be doing it. I believe the words he used were that she should stay in her lane, the idea being that she's going outside of the scope of, of the responsibilities of her office, said it's instead a job for the OPP is the OPP doing that job, would be the natural next <laughs> question. Uh, the Auditor General, of course, said the OPP knew about it and was uh, given a heads up that, that her office was conducting these uh, these secret shopper visits that she was using. You know, uh, the Premier obviously does not like these tactics that the AG used to get this information. But, you know, you would think that he'd be happy to know that at least some of the casinos are uh, doing the proper due diligence. And and. It, Where they're not, he would like to know, presumably, which casinos are not doing due diligence and potentially being used by criminal elements
1: in this province to launder money. You would think that would be worth finding out, indeed. Now, let's just say one more word about this. Whenever the Auditor General's report comes out, it's always a great one-day story, right? Malfeasance or stupidity revealed. Uh, The media have a field day with it, the opposition as well. Does the Auditor General's work actually have any legs, so to speak? Now, she says the answer is yes. She says her office followed up on 15 reports from two years ago and notes that 70% of her recommendations from two years ago have been or are in the process of being implemented, There are three other chapters that she says has an 80% implementation rate, which the AG calls a very high rate of follow-up. So, that's encouraging.
0: I would just add that, uh, you know, you refer to it as a one-day story, and often that's necessarily how we treat it because there's always more stuff to write about. But I would tell our listeners that, you know, if if you... Pay attention in January and February when things are a bit slower uh, around the legislature itself. You will find some reporters who uh, managed to, to make some more news by digging into some of the chapters in the AG's annual report.
1: Uh, yes, we're, we're going to appeal. Uh, my hands are tied on what I can say. It's in front of the courts right now. Uh, I can say it was a very interesting verdict to say the least but that's about as far as I can comment on on that. That's
0: Premier Doug Ford last week commenting just a little on the decision by an Ontario court to throw out Bill 124, otherwise known as the Protecting a Sustainable Public Sector for Future Generations Act. Uh, the law was found to be a breach of uh, labor's charter rights. A Bill
1: 124, in case you need reminding, was the law that held public sector wage increases to 1% over the last few years. And of course, once again, we're going to do this full disclosure thing. TVO is a public agency. We were under the aegis of Bill 124, so that was certainly the circumstance For all of our employees here. Now, while the court decision is very interesting, what's even more interesting is the premier's reaction to it. And you saw that he used the words very interesting (laughs) to describe the decision. And that's where our friend J.M.M. will pick up the story. So the premier
0: has confirmed that he will not use the notwithstanding clause to overturn this decision. They are just going to uh, appeal this decision uh, first to the Court of Appeals and I suppose in theory to the uh, Supreme Court of Canada. The grounds for appeal here is kind of interesting to me. There was a, a an excerpt from the decision that was uh, passed around by many of the government's critics that said basically um, the, the government could not prove that it was in a fiscal emergency that would justify Bill 124 at the same time as it was giving away tax cuts and, uh, you know, license plate sticker rebates uh, whose cost was substantially greater than any of the savings that came out of uh, Bill 124. And that's I would say dicey language for a judge to use in a in a court decision. It's getting out there a bit, isn't it? Yeah, because a little I, bit. We don't have a a strict separation of powers that you learn about in like American political history. But in general, courts are not supposed to be judging the various policy choices that a government makes. They test it for whether it complies with the charter. There's some leeway in there to uh, decide whether a policy has been narrowly tailored, whether it is is uh, appropriately. Shaped so that it it is minimally invasive in charter rights, um, and I and I do think that's where the justice was trying to get at. But I think when the the premier said it was a very interesting decision, I think that's what he was alluding to that it it did appear like the the court might have gotten a bit over his skis. (laughs) As somebody who's (laughs) occasionally gotten too far over my skis, Mm -hmm. I am sympathetic. (laughs) Um, So I think that might be the grounds for uh, appeal. I should say that, you know, these things aren't automatic. The the government does have to uh, seek leave to appeal to uh, the higher courts. I suspect they will probably get it in this case. Um, But, you know, there's this substantial issue to uh, debate and uh, for courts to adjudicate. You know, what is the government's power to uh, restrict Restrict the compensation of public sector employees uh, at a time when they feel that government spending has, has uh, increased too quickly. Obviously, we've talked about labour rights uh, quite a bit in the fall uh, of 2022 because the government has invoked the notwithstanding clause uh, once, and I guess briefly, uh, in its dispute with QP. And this all uh, flows from the fact that, you know, since 2007 or so, the Supreme Court of Canada has uh, really gone farther in entrenching uh, labour rights, collective bargaining rights, and the right to strike uh, in uh, charter jurisprudence which doesn't mean that governments can never breach uh, organized labor's rights. There is the, the Section 1 test in uh, charter law, which says, you know, you're able to limit the rights enshrined in the charter uh, subject to the limits of a free and democratic society. That was the test here that Bill 124 failed, that uh, the, the court found that it, it just wasn't permissible under the, the basic test of uh, Section 1.
1: Would you permit me one more observation on this? Uh, I have gone on for way too long and need to catch my breath, so please do. <laughs> okay. I, I will confess to a little bit of confusion as to what the government's ultimate aims are here. And and let me lay out the case here. The government attempted to use the notwithstanding clause on the CUPE education workers, even though that would constitute the least expensive settlement of all the education workers um, that the government is about to have to negotiate with. Um, Then the labor leaders raised hell when the government threatened to use the notwithstanding clause. And so the premier changed his mind and he said, "Okay, we're not going to use the notwithstanding clause after all, um, but we are going to appeal. Now, with Bill 124, when the financial implications could reach $10 billion, the premier has said he will not use the notwithstanding clause. Now, I'm definitely no political strategist, but it seems to me that if you want to use the nuclear option, you should save it for the truly existential moment, and that would be Bill 124, the $10 billion expenditure, not the CUPE settlement, which was going to be like one twentieth of that. So are you as confused as I am about what the government's approach is here? Uh, certainly many
0: choices the government has made in the last uh, let's say three months or so uh, have confused me and uh, but I think what we're seeing here is uh, you know just the result of um I guess I want to say like the contingency of events, right? If the notwithstanding clause had not led to the very quick retreat by the government uh, in the face of almost total rejection by both private and public organized labor, maybe they would have thought about using the notwithstanding clause again in this context. Uh, They are not for now. I guess the other thing I would say is politics can change too. And if after, you know, it's going to take them certainly more than a year to exhaust all of their, Appeals a year is a very long time in politics, as you well know. And just because they do not say they will use the notwithstanding clause now, does not mean that if it gets to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court says no. Actually, the first court had it right. Bill 124 is unconstitutional. They can then go back and use the notwithstanding clause then. (laughs) He
1: could change his mind. That's quite true. That's true. We should mention while we're on the labor beat here. God, the CUPE workers did ratify the deal. Seventy-three percent of the CUPE workers, the education workers, voted yes. They had a 70 percent turnout, both decent numbers, so there will be no further strike. From CUPE. From CUPE, <laughs> that is correct. All right, let's check in with Recession Road.
3: My name is Pam Hansen. For the church, I run, a, help run the
4: Feed and Window program on Tuesdays. What do you think is important for you about this program?
3: Uh, To let the community get together and fellowship with one another. It's time to mend hearts and loneliness. So it breaks loneliness, basically. Everybody comes around the neighborhood and enjoys it. A lot of people live in apartments around. A lot of seniors just come for a night out. What's the usual mix of people you get? Usually the older, yeah. 50 and older. There's over 100 people we would get before the pandemic. Oh, wow. Yeah, so it's slowly, gradually coming back. Right. Yeah. Right. Every Tuesday? Yeah, yeah. yeah. about yeah. 65 to 100. Usually the last weekend when the check runs up, oh, yeah. you get more people. Right. hundred. Like today, we ran out of plates. Right. So that's about 65 plates. And we had to use the China plates because we ran out of plates. So it was right. more about 75 people tonight. Oh, gee.
1: That was part of a conversation between TVO's affordability reporter, Kat Eschner, and a woman she spoke with in Windsor. It's the second audio installment of Recession Road, and it brings Kat back to our podcast with more. Welcome back. Nice to see you again. You as well. You said that very insincerely and like you really (laughs) didn't mean it at all.
4: See, I asked before the before the recording. I asked Steve to give me a little bit of audio coaching because I've never done this before. So I think I think that may have been him. Him that was me audio playing. coaching. I don't know. What am I supposed to like? Am I supposed to say thank you for having me? Am I supposed to say it's a pleasure to be here? I'm so happy to see you, I Steve think and John.
1: All, all of those sound better than what you just said before. So yeah, sure. That sounds John Michael, rescue us here, please. Come in with your first question, Cat. Uh, why did you visit this church in Windsor?
4: So, this recording is from, it was taken in the foyer of Throne of Grace Church in Windsor, Ontario. It's downtown. And on the Tuesday night I was there, uh, Throne of Grace Church was playing host to a community meal, which is what um, Pam Hanser, the woman I spoke with, uh, runs, and also a new initiative called The Soup Shack, um, which I went to after the community meal ended. Uh, I went to these because they're—they um, both receive food, and in the case of the Soup Shack, funding from Feeding Windsor Essex, this this food charity that I, I write about in the piece. And I wanted to talk to some of the people who are using those services. Um, so Feeding Windsor Essex participates in like more than 20 community initiatives related to food, a variety of things, including a food bank, a bunch of other stuff. But this gave me an opportunity to meet some people who are using some of those resources. Um, and one of the people I met was named Michael Pontich, and you'll meet him in my story. Uh, And it just gave me an opportunity to talk about those people, talk to some of those people about, you know, where they're at, what they need, and also to talk to people like Pam um, and some of the other volunteers who, who put a lot of time and work and care into feeding people.
1: You could presumably and unfortunately probably tell this story in any number of communities around Ontario. So why Windsor?
4: That's very true. So to start with, I just want to debunk, like this story is about hunger. This story is about disparity and food disparity. But one of the things that I ran into when I started talking about reporting on Windsor is this kind of longstanding myth that Windsor sucks. I would like to say up top, I do not think Windsor sucks.
1: I'm with you. We did a show there for the agenda, uh, gosh, what, two months ago? Yeah. Yeah, we had a great time in the week.
4: yeah. Yeah, it's cool. So I think some of the big reasons I wanted to go to Windsor for this story... like One, it's an important city right now. It's a really important city, both provincially and federally. It has these international connections, and it was the site of a a, a really important border blockade uh, earlier this year. It's surrounded by very important Ontario farmland. It's the site of a number of manufacturing investments, uh, including some investment from, like a historic investment from the federal government in the new Stellantis battery plant, which will be operational later in this
1: decade. Province would want me to say that they also put big money into that, too. I'm
4: sorry, that's not in my notes. Allow me to say that again. Um, (laughs) No, 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 no. Just keep going. So it has all these these sort of good things and all these cool things like the food scene. There's a really interesting um, clothing scene there that I've examined a bit, but I won't get into here. It it has a lot going for it. But it's also a city with a lot of poverty and some poverty markers that are are disproportionate to other parts of the province. So about one in five Windsor kids live in low-income households. A number of those kids live with food insecurity. Low income levels more generally are, you know, well above provincial and federal averages. And this is all StatsCan data. And it's a city where affordability issues are really important, partially because historically they didn't used to be as important while we've all seen housing do do wacky stuff over the last few years Windsor's one of those places that has seen um, the cost of housing rise by several hundred times ta- like several hundred percent so homeownership cost has risen more than 200 percent since uh, before the pandemic renting has similarly spiked Windsor still sounds very affordable to me I live in downtown Toronto but it's a place that has become incredibly unaffordable from the perspective of local sort of what locals are used to food prices are hitting like everywhere else you know food increases are hitting both the, those great restaurants I mentioned and regular people because historically Windsor was a fairly wealthy place um, had fairly wealthy people living there um, it's a real car town has a very limited transit system it has some food deserts you know even though the surrounding region grows a lot of food and a lot of food comes through Windsor because of the the border. So all of this sort of factored into why I was interested in Windsor. But I was also interested in Windsor because Windsor and its surrounding region has a pretty robust charitable sector, um, much of which is faith-based. Um, and some of it is devoted specifically to food. Specifically, um, in this case, I spoke with uh, people from Feeding Windsor Essex, which is a very large charitable organization that made all the food served at the community meal and the soup shack and that is, that is funding the soup shack. I should note as well, it's not just Christian organizations. A number of other organizations, such as the Windsor Islamic Association, also do food banking.
0: This segment started with a discussion in a church. Are churches uh, and and other religious groups, uh, are they bearing the brunt of the food and, and social insecurity?
4: Organizations that are religious, specifically organizations that are Christian in some form, play an important role in this area. Feeding Windsor Essex is a pretty big organization. It is a Christian organization um, although they um, they're non proselytizing like they're not trying to trying to tell anybody what to do, but that's sort of uh, the motivations of its founder Roger Fordham. He explained that sort of he sees for him it is his duty as a Christian to to sort of work to help people in this way um, and I think that a number of other people who I spoke to would probably say the same. Um, also, two of the three sort of major emergency shelters in Windsor, so these are places where you you go if you literally have nowhere else to sleep, are um, the two that deal with single men are both, one's a Salvation Army shelter, the other one is a, a mission shelter, and they're both religious in nature. So I think it's safe to say that religious organizations play a fairly substantial role in Windsor's charitable sector.
1: Give us the bigger picture here. What happens when a society relies perhaps too much, on the charitable sector to feed people?
4: I think what happens when we rely on the charitable sector too much is that people fall through the cracks because the charitable sector can't do it all. You know, having to rely on the charitable sector, the charitable sector is not as as firmly beholden to equity as, for example, the government is. So I'm not saying the government should do this stuff necessarily, but the problems, the, these sort of structural problems are not ones that charity has capacity to act on, but they're also not ones that necessarily it has the priorities to act on. So, for example, you know, the Salvation Army, one of the three shelter emergency shelters in Windsor, has a sort of long history of some degrees of discrimination against queer people, numerous allegations about that, and it can still operate with that sort of history. And that reflects the ways in which it's not as beholden to equity as articulated in, for example, the Charter of Rights as, you know, a, a government is. I'm trying to square these two different things, right? This sort of macro level stuff that we talked about, about, you know, charity and everything. And the micro level stuff, which is literally I saw Pam Hansor feed people. And I think the charitable sector is a great example of something that, that does help, but maybe doesn't help as fully as, you know, we could
0: wish. Kat, what's next in the series?
4: So next, I'm going to take you all to Sudbury with me, where I covered one street in the city and some of the people who live on it.
1: Cool. We look forward to that. Kat, thanks for your visits here. That's Kat Eschner. Recession Road is the name of the series. You can listen to it. You can read about it. And, of course, we look forward to your next visit to have you tell us more about it. Thank you. Thanks, Steve. And that is the On Polly podcast for this Tuesday, December 6, 2022. Next week, incidentally, will be our last episode for 2022, but we will be back in your feats tomorrow if there is something worth updating on the NDP race, but we kind of doubt there will be. But you never know, but we kind of doubt. It. <laughs> Another reminder that if you are an aspiring
0: documentarian, TVO Today is calling on all nonfiction storytellers to submit a short documentary
1: under five minutes. Check out shortdoc.tvo.org for more details. And don't forget to check out our newsletters. You can subscribe to that at tvo.org newsletters. This week, JMM and I riff on some more about the Auditor General and criticisms on whether she's become a proponent of what they call mission creep. Spoiler alert, she doesn't think so. Any feedback you have, we are happy to hear it, good, bad, or
0: indifferent. Write us an email at TVO.org. This week's episode was produced and edited by Tiffany Lamb. Our managing editor is
1: Shahyar Tajvidi. Production support from Carla Lucchetta, Jonathan Hallowell. COVID is not yet over, people, so let's remember, as my dad likes to say, stay positive, test negative. Stay safe, Steve.